0: Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. will be reading from Matthew twenty-eight sixteen through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Essential Doctrine is our current teaching series, What Every Christian Should Know. We've been working through this acronym, the word doctrine, that gives us uh, the doctrines that we believe in, that we trust in. Pop quiz time. You guys ready for a pop quiz? Here we go. So let's walk through the first few that we've already learned. So the D in the doctrine, in the acronym doctrine, stands for what? Deity Deity of Christ. We talked about his deity. He's the the Savior, the ruler of the world. He's the creator. And then the D-O, O stands for what? Original sin. We messed it all up because of our sinfulness. And then the C stands for... Canon, you were a little weaker on that one. So Canon of Scripture, Darren did a fantastic job last weekend helping us to see how we got the Scriptures, how we got the Bible, and then that we can absolutely trust in its inerrancy, infallibility, its authority for our lives. And so this weekend we're talking about the T. What is the T? The Trinity. We're going to talk about the Trinity. And a number of years ago, my wife and I, Took a trip up to Pikes Peak. Anybody ever taken a drive up to Pikes Peak? And so if you thought that she was nervous with me driving <laughs> up to Sunset Point here just out of Phoenix, she was really, really nervous. No guardrails. It gets dirt road as you work your way up. And so Phoenix is about a 1,000 uh, feet elevation. Prescott is 5,000. Flagstaff is 7,000. Pike's Peak is 14,000, 14,000. So we got out of our car, walked around, we both got lightheaded, got back in our car and headed back down, okay? And because we were just kind of lightheaded because there's not a lot of oxygen up there, she was sucking up most of it. I'm kidding, that was, that, this is the only service I said that in, so we, we won't put this one online, okay, because you'll hear that. But the reason why I said that is because this is a very high altitude doctrine that will make you a little light headed. It's going to spin your head around. Take a look at your sermon notes there. The term Trinity is not found in the Bible, but the concept is clearly there. So the term's not there, but the concept is clearly there. And the implications of this uh, mystery are stunningly beautiful, believe me. They are stunningly beautiful. And the doctrine of the Trinity is assumed in the Bible, very seldom in the foreground. In other words, you can't actually go to a text that's actually teaching you about the Trinity. So it's very seldom in the foreground, almost always in the background, as it is in this text that we read. Oftentimes, we use this text that we read this morning as a, a text for the Great Commission, and that's the, that's the foreground. But in the background, you have the Trinity. And it actually teaches us some really good things about the Trinity, as we will see as we work through our notes here this morning. Um, take a look at these two quotes. They're on your notes, also up on the screen. This is what J.I. Packer said, the historical doctrine of the Trinity confronts us with perhaps the most difficult thought the human mind has ever been asked to handle. It is not easy, but it is true. So think about this, the most difficult thought the human mind has ever been asked to handle. That's where we're headed this morning. Week and that's what we've been talking about. The most difficult thought the human mind has ever been asked to handle. John Wesley put it this way: "Bring me a worm that can comprehend a man, and then I will show you a man that can comprehend the triune God." <laughs> there you have it. So, three questions we're looking at: what the Trinity is and isn't. We're going to look at what it is, and then what it isn't. We're going to look at some heresies that are that are prevalent in our uh, culture today. And then we'll ask the question, answer the question, why we should believe it, and then uh, what difference does it make? So we're going to kind of zip through the first two questions because I want to spend most of our time on the last question. So it, it took us uh, about two hours to teach this last night. You guys okay with that? Okay. You guys are like, what? We're going to go ahead and lock all the doors right now, Okay. It didn't, take, it didn't take us two hours. It just took us only one hour. So you okay with that? So it's a long, I give you a lot of stuff here. I think it's important to really cover it thoroughly. And, uh, but I want to spend most of the time on the, on the last question. What difference does it make? It's really important. But I've got to lay a foundation. You need to know that it's biblically uh, accurate and true, this idea of the, of the Trinity. Let's take a look at the first question. What the Trinity is and isn't first of all I give I give you a definition here the trinity is that god is one in essence and three in person he's one in being and three in person it's a paradox, but not a contradiction. I asked my wife, what is the Trinity? I asked her this last week. I always test her from time to time when I'm teaching on something. She nailed it. Once again, she told me exactly what it is. I, well, that's, that's really good. I wonder if most people can answer that question. So you need to not only be able to answer the question, how do you define it, but also defend it according to Scripture, and then also tell people the implications of what difference does it make in our lives that's where we're headed with the study. And so the Trinity is, is that God God is one in essence, three in person. One in essence, three in person. Turn to the person next to you see if they can uh, recite that back to you real quick because you need to be able to answer that question. What is the Trinity anyway? Real quick, do that. So the Trinity is one in person, God is one in person, three, I'm sorry, one, I've got it all confused, don't I? This for sure won't be on the uh, on, online. Okay, I already messed it all up this morning. So God is one in essence, three in person. Did I get that right? Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. This is the third, per- the third person. This is, <laughs> this is the third service. <laughs> And you just never know what you're going to get. Okay. Okay, so some of you start praying for me right now. This might actually be three hours long, okay? So uh, there are three parts to the doctrine of the Trinity Here's the first part, there is one God. Let me show you biblically why that's true. There is one God. Look at our text once again. If you have your Bibles open, there our text. Verse 19, it says, baptizing them in the name. Notice it didn't say names of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but name, singular. So it's giving us evidence that God is one. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is One. Psalm 86:10 For you are a you are great and do wondrous things you alone are God you alone are God John 5:44 Jesus said to the Pharisees How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God There's no other gods there's only one God as the Bible says. Romans 3:20 uh, or 3:30 says God is one. God is one. And then here's the second idea. So three parts to the doctrine of the Trinity. There is one God. Here's the next one. God is three persons. God is three persons verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. So you got the three persons right there. Matthew 3:16 through 17, when Jesus was baptized immediately he went up from the water and behold the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with him, with whom I am well pleased. So you got the three persons of the Godhead in that. The, the very last verse of 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and he says this to them, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And so you see it there. You see the three persons. One in essence, three in person. So that's the New Testament. What about the Old Testament? Does the Old Testament give us evidence of the Trinity? Well, you see evidence of the Trinity in the early pages of Genesis. Maybe you're familiar with these words. Then God said, Genesis one twenty six. then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So you got evidence of it right there. He's speaking of plurality here of the Godhead. Genesis 3.22, just a few chapters later, this is part of the fall, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. One of us. He's talking about the triune God there, the Godhead. This next Old Testament verse applies directly to the incarnation of Christ. And as you well know, we talked about this. There are some 300 predictions in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled in the New Testament. So there's like 300 places where it gives predictions about the coming of the Messiah. This is one of of many of those, Isaiah 48, 16. And now the Lord God, that's the Father... Has sent me, that's Jesus, and his spirit. So you got the three persons of the Godhead. Now, St. Augustine said if you read the Old Testament without the New Testament, you would never come up with the Trinity. He said that the Old Testament is like a furnished room dimly lit, and not until you let light into that room from the New Testament are you able to see it more clearly. See, once you have Jesus, you look back and can see him all over the Old Testament in the angel of the Lord, through the types and the pictures and the shadows. I mean, he's all over the place in the Old Testament. In fact, he even said, fifth chapter John, even in Luke, he said, it's all about me. The very last chapter of Luke, he says that, so it's all about me. So there is one God. God is three persons. Here's the third idea, is that each person is fully God. So they're co-equal, co-eternal, all three. The Father is God, Romans 1.7, 2 Corinthians 1.3. I love it how it describes our Father in Second uh, 2 Corinthians 1.3. It's a verse that it's very dear to my heart. I've used it from on myself many times. I'm going through a hard time, but I've shared it with many others as they've gone through a hard time. It describes our father, and it says this: that he is a father of compassion, a God of all comfort. <laughs> I love that. He's a father of compassion. Yeah, that word there means that when your heart breaks, his heart is breaking for you. He feels your pain. But he doesn't just stop there. He moves in alongside of you. He was always with you. That's father of compassion, God of all comfort. Comfort meaning he's going to be there for you. In fact, the Bible even says as you continue reading that text, he says that he comforts you with so much comfort that you are able to then in turn comfort others with the same comfort that you've received from him. Pretty amazing. So that's the Father is God. Jesus is God. We, t- we did a whole teaching on that pretty extensively, pretty thoroughly. It was the, the second of this series, talked about the deity of Christ. But let me just show you in this text how we know that Christ uh, is God. Jesus is God. Um, verse 17, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. These are the, his disciples. These are his disciples that this is post resurrection. And he told those uh, to tell his disciples, I'll meet you in Galilee. This is in Galilee. And uh, he, they worship him. They worship him as God. Verse 19, in this text, Jesus has the audacity to put himself in between God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. So he says, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So what if you were to come on a Sunday morning or, or whenever, and I came up and I said, uh, Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Pastor Ray, and the Holy Spirit. What would you think of that? That wouldn't go, would it? You better run out of here really fast. Something has happened to Pastor Ray. He thinks he's part of the triune God. I have met a few people that thought that they were part of the Trinity by how they behaved and how they would talk to you. And I would have to remind them you are not you know, the second person of the Trinity, or the third person, or the fourth person. There's no such thing, but you're not God. And uh, so we tend to play God. We want to be God, and yet none of us are God. But Jesus is saying, I am God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son. He's speaking of himself and the Holy Spirit. Another place you could go to in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, so that almost sounds strange. He was with God, and yet he was God. So you got that idea of this triune God working there. And also, we, we need to know that the Holy Spirit is God, because oftentimes people will misdefine the Holy Spirit almost like he's a force or refer to him as an it. No, he's a person third person of the triune god in fact acts 5 3 through 4 says this but peter said ananias why has satan filled your heart to lie to the holy spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land you have not lied to man but to god referring to the holy spirit as god 2 Corinthians 3, 16 through 18. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So you get that one and the same, God's temple, God's spirit dwells in you, in you. so we know that the Holy Spirit is God. Probably the best symbol for the Trinity would be this symbol. Look at it on the screen here. It's also on your notes, so you can see. So God is one in essence, three in person. So one in essence, you got God, The three in person, Son, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is God, Father is God, Son is God. But you'll notice also that the Spirit is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. They're they're distinct from one another, and yet they're all one. I told you this was high-elevation thinking. It's really hard to fully comprehend, but you're never going to be able to figure it out because you're finite, and he's infinite. He's way beyond us. And uh, you have to always keep that in mind. So there is one God. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. They're co-equal, co-eternal. Now, we've got to deal with some errors here, some heresy, okay? Buckle your seatbelts because... Uh I think maybe that maybe some of us are guilty of this, and so I need to kind of deal with this. But errors, heresy come from denying any of those three parts. Here's, here's one error. It's called tritheism. That's your next fill in the blank, by the way. Tritheism teaches that the Trinity consists of three equal, independent, and autonomous beings, each of whom is divine. Anybody, can you think of any group in our culture today that teaches that? Anybody want to yell it out to me? Mormons, yeah, somebody said Mormons. Yeah, Mormons teach that, that we can all be a God. They basically teach all that. They, tr- they teach uh, tritheism, and Mormonism teaches that. This denies there is one God. And there's also analogies that oftentimes we latch onto to try to help people to understand uh, God, and they're really bad analogies. Let me give you one bad analogy is the egg how many of you have ever used, someone used the egg as an analogy to try to understand the Trinity? Okay, so that, it's, it's not a good analogy because when you look at the egg, they would often say, well, the egg, it has the shell then it has the yolk and it has the, I guess, the white part. That's different from the yolk, isn't it? Okay, I don't know. She just gives them to me scrambled, so I don't know. They're just, and she throws away the shell. But anyway... Uh, but the problem is that the egg is made up of three distinct and unlike parts. Actually, teaching tritheism or, or partialism would be another false teaching, partialism. Don't use that analogy, okay? Or you'll be kicked out of the church. <laughs> I'm, I was joking with that, and you laughed, thankfully. But don't use It's not a good analogy. It's not a good analogy. It just it reinforces false teaching. And uh, and so here's another one, uh, modalism. Modalism uh, is one that, modalism is one person appearing in three dis- different forms, different modes, different modes. So can you think of any groups out there that would teach modalism? Okay, oneness Pentecostalism, Jesus only groups out there. So what they would say is, well, Jesus wears the He puts on the Jesus hat when he needs to put on the Jesus hat, and then he becomes the father, puts on the father hat, and then from time to time, he puts on the Holy Spirit hat. So he plays these different roles. Like I'm a father, and I'm a husband, and I'm a grandfather, so I wear these different roles and different hats. That's not what actually the Bible teaches. That's heresy. And uh, that's oneness, Pentecostalism, Jesus, Jesus only. Ironically, T.D. Jakes on the Trinity Broadcasting Network is a modalist who supposedly mentors Steve Furtick. And so this denies that God is three persons. It's bad teaching, it's heresy. The analogy that is often used here is the H2O heresy. Or H2O uh, analogy. I'm sorry, H2O analogy is used to. And so people will use the h 20 You guys familiar with the H2O analogy? That, that it's like it's like H2O and the the Trinity. And so it comes in different forms. You've got uh, liquid form, and then you've got the. Uh, you got ice and then you got steam, so you got the three different forms and, and that's actually modalism is what you're teaching. The problem is that no one molecule of H two O can actually exist as water, steam, and ice at the same time. This analogy actually teaches the heresy of modalism. So don't use that analogy, okay? Don't use the analogy. Uh, Here's another one. The third one is Arianism. Arianism denies the deity of Jesus and that he is the highest created being of God. So who uses this? Who teaches this in in the culture today? Jehovah Witnesses. Jehovah Witnesses. They teach this. And um, this denies that each person is fully God. Oftentimes the analogy is used of the Son, the sun is a physical object, but also gives off light and heat. So you got the sun, the physical object with light and heat. The problem is that the light and heat are produced by the sun. And so God did not produce or create Jesus or the Holy Spirit. They're co-equal, co-eternal. So that's not a good one either. Do not use that, that analogy. There really aren't any analogies. Other than that, that uh, you saw that symbol that we put up there. That would probably be the best to just say... Uh, you're not going to understand it. You're not going to embrace it, but it's very biblical. And the implications are, are out of this world when you begin to understand it, as we will get to eventually. Also, beware of books like The Shack that sold 30 million copies and was made into a movie. Though the book is fictional, it teaches a false gospel and conveys a very low and unbiblically distorted view of the triune God. I'm not trying to be hardcore here. I'm just telling you that there's a, it was swept up by the Christian community like crazy. And I actually heard someone say that uh, this counselor said, yeah, I use the shack to counsel people to help them to work through their junk. And I go, why don't you use the Bible? <laughs> it's like, why would you use that? That doesn't make any sense. And it was widely swept up by the Christian community. And people was just like, oh, it's a great book, great movie, whatever. It's bad theology. It's just horribly bad theology. And so uh, why, why, sh- why we should believe it? Why should we believe the Trinity? How about this one? How about this answer? Because it's biblical, okay? You okay with that? Because if you believe in the authority, the infallibility, the inerrancy of the Bible, which I do, which we do here, that when we pick up his word, It is alive and powerful. It's the active presence of God, that God is speaking to us. So then we believe that God has, how do we know there's a God? Because he's revealed himself to us. He's got a book out. It's the number one bestseller of all times, by the way. There will be more Bibles sold this year than any other book. And it's been like that ever since the printing press. It's an amazing book. God is speaking to us. He reveals himself to us. And so that's why we believe it, because that's what the Bible teaches. But we also believe it because uh, when we define God any other way than what he has revealed himself to us, it's demeaning to him. It's an offense to him. You know, I oftentimes hear people say, Well, I choose to believe that God is like this, or I prefer to see God like that. Well, it doesn't matter what you prefer because you have just a figment of your own imagination. That's God. That God will never help you because it's just a made-up God in your own mind. That's horrible. How about going to God? We don't discover who God is by human speculation, but by divine revelation. He's revealed himself to us, ultimately through Christ, but through this book, through his word. And so it's important to define him according to how he has revealed himself to us. Otherwise, it just it becomes terribly offensive, and it's in violation of the second and the third commandment. Second and third commandment. What in the world is he talking about here? You guys know what the second and third commandment is. The first one is you should have no other gods before me. What's the second one? No idols, no graven images. You start defining God however you want. That's an idol, and also it's the third. Uh, it, it violates the third commandment, which is don't take His name in vain. Define him as his character, as the Bible reveals his character to be. Name represents character, nature, who he is. Don't take his name, his character, his nature in vain, empty. Don't distort it. I was newly married. I was a pipe fitter apprentice working at Coronado Generating Station in St. John's, Arizona. Anybody know where St. John's, Arizona is? St. John's, Arizona? That was a horrible place. (laughs) I always called it, I called it this... uh, that it was the armpit of Arizona. But uh, hopefully you're not from there because I just offended you. Please forgive me. Uh, but but it, I didn't think it was all that great of a place. But Springerville was a great place. I was newly married. We lived in Springerville, eager. I'd drive into work. But uh, I was an apprentice at the time, and it was known for journeymen at that time to hassle and harass and haze apprentices. It was very common of what they would do. So I knew I had to put up with a certain measure of that if I want to keep my job and and continue in the apprenticeship program. But I'll never forget this. I had a, uh, a journeyman. He was a welder. He was a pompous, arrogant bully of a welder That uh, he was working, and and finally I kind of, I guess I had my field of whatever he was doing and anybody else was doing to me. But uh, I remember him up on a scaffolding, it was about two stories, about three stories high on scaffolding, and he would yell down to me to get uh, stuff and tie it into a bucket and bring it, he would bring it up and back and forth like that. But I'll never forget this, he began to yell down at me, Hey boy! Hey boy! Hey boy! Hey boy! Had that kind of kind of demeaning. He was very demeaning, and he kept yelling, "Hey, boy!" And I just ignored him. <laughs> it is so beautiful out. Hey, boy! Hey, boy! Finally, he just really just got even more upset as I just continued to ignore him, and finally I just walked over to the bottom of the you know the scaffolding and I looked up at him. And I said, you worthless piece. No, I didn't say any of that. But I, I thought of that. That's what I was wanting to do, okay? I was wanting to do that. I was going to tell him to tie that rope around his neck, and I was going to jerk him down to the, to the floor. That's, I had all those terrible, terrible thoughts. But I didn't do any of that. I was a Christian at the time, and I had to fight all of that. And I just sat. I looked up at him and said, hey, my name's not boy. My name's Ray. Call me by my name, please. And he was like, I mean, he was kind of stunned by that. And it was kind of like me drawing the line. That's very disrespectful, to bully me, to call me by my uh, by anything other than my name. And he, he respected me from that point on. I, got, I was treated better, and it was kind of like drawing the line in the sand and saying, hey, don't treat me. I mean, he could have gone on and tried to abuse me or whatever, and that was very common in those days. But but that's nothing compared to our Uh, trying to redefine God or to refer to him as anything but what he's revealed himself in his word. It's terribly disrespectful to refer or relate to God in any other way than how he has revealed himself through his word. I mean, I hear people say this. I always cringe when they say, oh, the man upstairs or Jesus is my homeboy. Uh, It's like, ay, 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 or they refer to the Holy Spirit as an id or as a power or as a force or any number of things. And I just cringe. I I just want to say, do you have any idea who you're referencing? Evidently, you don't. You wouldn't talk about him or to him that way in that nonchalant, cavalier, casual attitude. There will be a humility that you would be addressing the God of the galaxies, who he is and what he's done for you. There should be a sense of trembling when you speak of him and you talk to him and interact with him. There should be a humble confidence to where you realize, I can't believe I, I can. he's invited me to have relationship with him. The God who spoke all of this into existence has drawn me into relationship with him. That's That's mind-boggling. That's overwhelming. And uh, so there should be that humility. And so I I said all that to say, why why do we believe in the Trinity? Because it's biblical, and you need to make sure that you're referencing God and referring to God as he has revealed himself to us. Here's another reason, too. This isn't part of your notes. This was just kind of add-on as I was reflecting on this, is that the deeper and the more accurate the theology, the doctrine the higher the doxology, doxology is worship, so the deeper and the more accurate the theology or the doctrine, the higher the doxology, worship, so your worship of God rises or falls with your concept of God. So your concept of God causes your worship of him to rise or fall based on what you see about God. If your worship is flat, it's because you have a small God, but the more you begin to see who he is, When he's done for you, oh, my goodness, glorious praise will overwhelm you, will flow from your heart towards him. And the more it will bring healing to you psychologically. So the the deeper the theology, the higher the doxology, the healthier the psychology, it will set you free. It's more life-liberating, soul-satisfying psychology that begins to take place. That's why you want to have an accurate view of God, because it will transform you. It will transform your life, and um, so that, enough there, but let's go on, let me give you the next couple fill in the blanks because we're asking the question why I should believe this, and it's based on this text. And so if you were going to make up a religion and sell it to the public, you would have never come up with this, the Trinity. You never would. This isn't man-made. Man doesn't make up these kind of things because nobody would, would make this up because it's beyond human comprehension. Even more so do I know that this is from God. And so verse 17 of our text gives us two reasons we can believe in the Trinity. Some worshiped and some doubted, which is fascinating that the writer would say that. This is at the end of Matthew, and these are the disciples who showed up, and it says some worshiped, some doubted. That sounds counterproductive if you're really trying to promote Christianity. These are the guys that he hung out with and some Some believed and some doubted. Doubt isn't a bad thing. We all doubt. We all struggle with doubt. Doubt is somewhere in between belief and unbelief. It's not unbelief, but it's doubt. They're struggling with all this. They just saw him die, and now he's there with them face to face. So some worshiped, some... Doubted, But later on, they all worshipped and all were willing to give their life for him and turned their world upside down as they proclaimed the resurrected Christ as Savior. Absolutely amazing. Here's the two reasons. So Jesus' greatness, his deity overwhelmed them. Jews would have been the last ones to believe in the Trinity. Yet... The Christian faith in the New Testament is made up of initially and predominantly Jews. I don't have time to get into the implications of that, why that's so earth-shattering that a Jew would believe that God would be human and even believe that there's different depths to God in the triune God. That was just beyond their paradigm. as a major paradigm shift. But they believed it because they encountered this Jesus. Jesus had divine qualities that no one else has ever had that they couldn't refute not only just by experientially but biblically they begin to see because Jesus talked regularly about the Old Testament and making reference to the Old Testament as it related to him so they believed the word and they they encountered him they knew him here's the second his resurrection validated his deity the whole New Testament by the way is written by eyewitness accounts of, of those that saw the resurrected Christ Christianity is historical factual it's evidential the whole New Testament is about the resurrected Christ and eyewitnesses of that. The book of Acts t- talks about how this explosive uh, message of Christ crucified and dead, buried, raised on the third day to come and t- transform people's lives, that was explosively just went through the culture like crazy, and you see that in the book of Acts. And so um, why did they worship Jesus overnight it was the resurrection. And we're going to talk about that next week, so we won't spend a lot of time on that, but we're going to look at the evidence for that and the, and the difference it makes in our life as we will, as, as you will see why it made a difference in their life. So here's, here's the important part here. All of that's really important, but this is, it's important to understand how these doctrines apply to our life. And so here's where we go. What difference does it make? What difference does it make? Without the Trinity, you have no creation or salvation. Without the Trinity, you have no creation or salvation. Let's look at creation just for a moment. Listen to these first three words, these first three verses in in Genesis. Genesis, the book of origins. So check this out. First three verses. See if you can see the triune God within these first three verses. Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Do you see this, the triune God in that? You see, certainly, the, you see the Father and the Spirit, but maybe you're kind of questioning, I don't really see the, the Son there. The only way that you can really understand that the Son is there, because He says this over and over, and God said, and God said, and God said. So you've got to go to actually John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Listen to what it says about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Do you hear it now? And God said, he's the word that was spoken. They're all there, all three of them in creation. We also know that all three of them are responsible for our salvation. Look back to our text, verse 19. It says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The word in there is a fascinating word. It carries more weight than what is read here when you say baptizing them in the word actually means into the Greek, and it's a very powerful and intense preposition. So into the name, which means nature and character. It's, it's more than just when we're baptized into the name, when we, when we confess faith in Christ, and then we make that public through water baptism, something that has happened that we've literally... Uh, we come under the authority of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit... But it, but it means that something of God is imparted to you. Something of God has been imparted to you through the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So this is how it works out. Here's what we see, is that our salvation is appointed by the Father before the foundation of the earth. Appointed by the Father, accomplished by the Son, applied by the Holy Spirit. That's how it works. So... So Father, it was appointed before the foundation of the earth. This was his plan. And it was accomplished by the Son. Son came down, died in our place for our sins. And then when we put our faith in him, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. And he's the one that makes it alive to our hearts anyway. Theologian Dr. James White put it this way, remove the loving Father, fount of salvation, the redeeming Son, sacrifice for sins, and the indwelling Spirit, comforter and advocate, and you have nothing left but ritual and rule, another less than unique religious system. So... In both creation and salvation, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have, all have distinct roles, but I, I begin to think out the implications of this even more so, and here's a couple of thoughts here before we move to the next point. The unity and diversity within the Trinity provide a wonderful basis for the unity and diversity we experience in everyday life, such as friendship and marriage and family and church and the world. That's one thought. Here's another thought, too, is that it's important to maintain balance in your understanding of all three of of the triune God, all three members of the triune God. All three persons need to be known, loved, and adored if you're going to have a balanced Christian life. For instance, if if you put all the emphasis on the Holy Spirit, you'll be too mystical and experiential and not have enough intellect or doctrine to keep you on track. It's going to get really weird. That's what happens oftentimes. People get off and get really weird and kind of mystical and all that because they don't have the framework of doctrine and the will, that is action. doesn't move them to action. They just want to sit around and experience God all the time. So that's the danger there. If you put all the emphasis on the Father, you'll possibly become a Pharisee, forgetting that you can only get to the Father through the Son. If you put all the emphasis on the Son, you'll miss out on the Father heart of God and the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. So there needs to be balance in all three of those. And so we see the triune God in creation and in our salvation. But also, here's the second one. These get even better. We go deeper into the understanding of the Trinity. The Loving relationships are more important than great accomplishments. This is what the Trinity teaches us. Loving relationships are more important than great accomplishments or, or success. Let me take you into some verses here that we're going now into some really deep things of God as it relates to the Trinity. John 1.18 describes the Son as, having, as living from all eternity in the bosom of the Father. That's the language that the, the, the Scriptures use. He's lived from all eternity in the bosom of the Father, which is an ancient metaphor for love and intimacy, In John 16, 14, the Holy Spirit, it says, glorifies the Son. So if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, this is what the Holy Spirit's going to do. He's going to make Christ more real to you. You're going to be more excited about Him than you're going to be excited about anything else. He's going to glorify the Son to you, and He's going to be bigger in your eyes than your trials and temptations. That's when you know the Holy Spirit's really working in your life. So the Holy Spirit glorifies the Son. John 17, 4 through 5, it says that the Son glorifies the Father, and the Father glorifies the Son. And this has been going on for all eternity. And then it tells us in 1 John 4, 8, that God is love. The essence of God, the essence of who he is, is love. Now, we've got to define this word glorify, because this is what's been happening within the Triune God for all eternity. They're glorifying one another and to glorify something or someone means to praise, adore, enjoy as very significant to you, not as a means to an end, but as an end, in and of themselves. Jonathan Edwards, in reflecting on the interior life of the triune God, concluded that God is infinitely the happiest being in the universe. Maybe you've never thought of God quite like that. He's the, he's the infinitely mo- the happiest being in the universe? yes. Yes, that's what the Trinity is giving us, that idea, that picture. Within God is a community of persons pouring, glorifying, joyful love into one another. Now, to kind of understand that, let me give you kind of a a picture here. Imagine there is someone you admire more than anyone else in the world, and, and you would do anything for him or her. Now imagine you discover that this person feels exactly the same way about you and you enter into either a lifetime friendship or a romantic relationship in a marriage. Sound like heaven? Yes, because it comes from heaven. That is what God has known within the Godhead in depths, and degrees that are infinitely, infinitely unimaginable. These are the deep things of God when you understand this. They're mind-boggling. Now, different views of God have different implications. That's why it's important to really believe in the Trinity because different views, you got different views of God. It has different implications in your life, how it works its way out in your life. For instance, if there is no God, love is a biochemical state in the brain. People that believe that we're here by random chance, unlimited time, you know, evolutionary process, they would say, oh, you you know, you felt you lost your loved one, so that's just chemistry, go find another loved one so that it'll satisfy your chemistry. Well, that's rude because we know it's much deeper than that. But that's what that's what is taught. If you uh, if you have this idea that there is no God, how about if there are many gods, polytheism? As some have said, the world was created by the fighting of these gods, and power and power is ultimate reality, not love. Or, if God is just a force. That's what Eastern re- religions teach. God isn't a person at all and becoming one with this impersonal divine force through meditation. You detach from everything else, finding serenity. So it's not about community at all. It's just you, de- you detach from everything else and it's a force and you, just, you get in touch with the force and so, so now you can have serenity because you're detached from everything else. That's, that's what Eastern religions teach. Or if God is unipersonal. If God is unipersonal, not a triune God, but he's unipersonal, then there was no love until God created beings because love is what one person has for another. And I've heard people say, I've heard people tell me, God created us because he was lonely. And I would say, wow, he was really hard up to. to. If we're somehow supposed to make him unlonely because he's got us, that's heresy. That's not biblical. He didn't create us because he was lonely. He wasn't. And a unipersonal God, because he went, the essence of him wouldn't be love. It might be power, but it wouldn't be love until he created us as objects of his love. Although he was, we are objects of his love, but it wasn't because he needed us. He already had all the love, all the joy, all the glory he would ever need. That's why it's important to understand that. So, so if God is triune, then there has been mutually self giving love for all eternity. If this world was made by a triune God, then loving relationships, friendships, and family and community is what life is all about. That's the essence of life. God is love. If, if we are made in the image of a triune God, then it shouldn't surprise us that people on their deathbeds, in hospice, don't talk about it. And by the way, as a, as a medic with Phoenix Fire for a number of years, and even as a, as a pastor and as a friend, I've been alongside of many bedsides when people were taking their last breath. And I, never, I have never heard any of them say, I wish I would have spent more time at the office. Have you seen my house? Oh, my goodness. I spent a lot of time on that backyard. It's really landscaped really nicely. i never heard anybody ever say that. It wasn't ever about accomplishments or achievements or acquisitions. That was, the, that was not on their mind. It was more about faith, family, and friends. Why is that? Because you can't escape your own nature and the fabric of the universe. See, we live in a culture where we choose our friends if they help us to get ahead in life. Don't do that. Don't, don't do that. Don't pursue your career, money, success at the expense of your family and friends. You will regret it terribly, maybe for eternity. When Jesus was asked, what's kind of what's the purpose of life? What, what's the greatest commandment? What's the most important thing that we can... Set as is the meaning of our life and why we exist. You remember, he gave, he summarized it all in, in two commandments: love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength; love your neighbors yourself. So that's that's that. That's let's go to the second one. So the next one. So that, what what does that mean? So it means it means this: so loving relationships are more important than great accomplishments. Here's the next one: serving is more important than being served. Serving is more important than being served. We're going to get into just a tad of psychology here to try to help us understand why we're wired up, why we're so jacked up, you know, in a lot of ways. And so this will help us to understand that. So serving is more important than being served. The inner life of the Triune God is characterized not by self-centeredness but by mutually self-giving love. Servanthood is in the heart of God. Servanthood is in the heart of God. Each person of the Trinity doesn't demand glory but gives glory mutually to one another. So, serving is, is about seeking the interest of others above your own. It's other centered, to where being served is about seeking your own interest, your own interest above others. That's very self centered. Let me ask you this question How do you think most people look for a friend, a spouse, or a church? Do you think they're self centered or other centered? Most likely, we're, we're, we're self centered. How will this place serve me? How will they serve me? We tend to make it, make it all about ourselves. Our society says things like this, be true to yourself, look out for number one, you deserve it, you earned it. Do you hear what they're doing? That's self-centeredness. My needs above your needs. You're here to serve me. We are swimming in that in our culture. The movies, the music, everything about us is about being self-centered, That's the essence of sin, being self-absorbed and self-centered. There are two forms of this self-centeredness. It comes in the form of superiority or inferiority. The Bible calls it pride or conceit. We'll talk more about it in a few weeks, but the superiority comes in the form of boasting. Boasting goes like this. I deserve admiration because of how much I've accomplished. Let me tell you about me here. Come on. I'll tell you about how much I've accomplished. I deserve admiration from you because look how great I am. That's, that's boasting, that's self-centeredness. Uh, the other form would be inferiority, which is, is, is in the, comes in the form of self, uh, uh, self-pity. Self-pity sounds like this. I deserve admiration because of how much I've suffered. <laughs> and they're both self-absorbed. Just in two different ways. You don't want to go either direction. See, helping a wounded person out of an inferiority complex into a superiority complex by telling them to look out for number one keeps them stuck. I've heard counseling do that. Oh, you feel bad about yourself? No, you're really a special person. You can overcome this. You are great. Wait, 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 time out. Don't help them to focus on them, that's their problem, that's the essence of sin. The, the more self-centered you are, the less you are like God and the more you are like Satan and the closer you get to hell. Remember what we talked about with the original sin, how it all went down? You and I were meant to walk in the garden in the cool of the day and to look into the face of our maker and receive all of the accepted security, significance we would ever need. Glory. Filled up with the glory of God. We thought we were smarter than God and more loving than God. We thought he was holding out on us. We turned our way from God. And immediately what happened? We became Spiritually alienated from God, the source of all life and love and liberty. We became empty on the inside, creating this psychological alienation, therefore sending us out into the world, creating all sorts of sociological alienation, because everything from that point on becomes a means to an end. It's called self-centeredness. We begin to, I begin to look to you to try to help fill up me, my job, my relationships, my kids, my marriage. It's a mess. Absolutely. A mess. It is at the root of the breakdown of relationships between individuals, classes, races, and nations. Self-centeredness. Now, Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. Philippians 2, 1 through will we we'll, we'll land on this. This is a this is a wonderful text that we're going to look at with the incarnation. But in that, it tells us that Jesus emptied himself of his glory so that we could be filled with the glory of knowing, loving, enjoying, and serving God. There is no greater glory, no greater beauty than to give up your glory or beauty for someone else. And that's what Jesus did for us. He did that for us. He gave up his glory and his beauty so that we could experience his glory and beauty. It's out of this world. Nothing rids you of self-centeredness like satisfaction in Christ, causing you to take your mind off of yourself and onto Christ and onto others. See, it's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less because you are. your heart is so full of the glory of the triune God. So people who live for God's glory, that they're, God, they're God-centered, see, it's God-centeredness is the answer. Are others centered because they already have their treasure in the triune God. They're filled up with him and who he is. This takes us to the next one. This is what he fills us up with. Is Number four, God created us not to get joy from us but to give joy to us. So guys like Jonathan Edwards and C.S. Lewis and these great minds, St. Augustine, we're all trying to say, okay, so if God didn't create us for joy... This triune God, what did he create us for? He he created us to give joy to us. If the triune God already had perfect joy in himself, why did he create us? He must have created us not to get joy from us, but to give joy to us. Now, I'm going to read to you a text that are truly the deep things of God. If you want to read this on your own, I would encourage you to do it. It's the 17th chapter of John, John 17, And this is just before Jesus is going to be hanging on the cross and he's interacting with his Father. And you see the beauty within the triune God as he's interacting with his Father. But I want to point out a couple things because he makes reference to us in this. It's absolutely breathtaking. John 17, 20 through 24, listen to what it says. I do not ask for these only. He's talking about his disciples. I'm not asking this prayer for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That's us. He's talking about us. And he says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me. And I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And here's the the phrase I want you to really latch on to. He goes on, he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That's what you're desperate for. You're trying to fill your heart up on all the junk in this world. When he offers you this glory, what is this glory? I think it's indescribable, indestructible joy. I think it's a joy in knowing him and walking with him and serving him and loving him and having him at the center of our lives. That's the glory you need. He goes on and he says... So the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so you get that unity with the diversity, so that the world may know that you sent me. Check this out. This next phrase landed on me not too long ago, and it was overwhelming. He says this so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. What? Do you hear that? He loves us even as he loves Jesus? How much does the Father adore Jesus, delight in Jesus, love Jesus? A lot. How much does he love us, adore us, delight in us? The same as he loves Jesus, his son, Praise God, huh? Is that good? Listen to me. Listen to me. This is the love you have been looking for your whole life. I'm telling you, listen to me. It's found in the triune God, in knowing him and worshiping him and loving him, putting him at the center of your life. It's out of this world. When that lands on you, not just as a concept, but as a reality deep in your heart, good night. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> There's nothing better. So his glory, a joy that's indescribable, indestructible, and a love. A love. Man, I, I pray that you would daily bask in the reality of this joy and this love that he offers, offers you. He goes on in that text, but C.S. Lewis put it this way: When God commands us to worship or glorify Him, He's inviting us to enjoy Him, and and it's all over Scripture. I mean, with verses like uh, Psalm sixteen eleven, in His presence is fullness of joy, or or Psalm sixty three three, His steadfast love is better than life, or. Or verses like Psalm 90, 14. This is one I pray almost every day. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love so that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Or Ecclesiastes 520, he will not much remember the days of his life because you keep him occupied with joy in his heart. It's amazing, absolutely amazing. The only thing that can rob you of this indescribable, and indestructible joy in God is, is idolatry. Is idolatry. And and idolatry is centering your life on anything more than God. In the text, it says in verses 19 through 20, verses 19 through 20, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. What is he talking about here? That you are so filled up with the joy and the love of God that you want to share that with the world. And so we could say evangelism is an invitation, so when we're, we're talking to people about Christ and all that he is, the triune God it's an invitation to indescribable, indestructible joy in the triune God, joy and love in the triune God. Discipleship is an increasing of our capacity for indescribable, indestructible joy and love in the triune God. See, this is a love and a joy that all the success in this world can't give you and all the suffering in this world can't take it from you. It's absolutely amazing. I pray that you would bask in the reality of that every day. Here's here's why we we have this right here, right here. Number five, it's on your notes. Jesus was abandoned so that you never will be. Jesus was abandoned. He was abandoned so that you never will be. To understand this mutually self-giving love within the triune God for all eternity is to begin to understand the infinite cost of Christ's love for you on the cross. If you are new here this morning and you were to come up to me at the end of the service and say, I hate you and I never want to see you again, I mean, it would would be hurtful. I've had a few people say something along those lines before. So I'm kind of somewhat ready for that, but it would still be hurtful. But it wouldn't be as hurtful as if some of you that have been here for a while and you have a vested interest here and I know you, and you came up to me and said, I hate you and I never want to see you again. That would hurt a little bit more. But it wouldn't hurt as bad as if I had one of my, you know, my family members, like a son or a daughter, come up to me and say, I hate you and I never want to see you again. That would hurt even more. But, but not as much as it would hurt if my wife of 42 years came up to me and said, I hate you, I never want to see you again. That would be devastating. Devastating. That would, that would rock my world. And, and the point that I'm making here is that the deeper and the longer the relationship, the more devastating the breakup. Some relationships scar you forever. But no one, no one has ever experienced what Jesus experienced in the garden and on the cross for us. In the garden, he sweat drops of blood, it said, with the anxiety of knowing what he was heading into on the cross. And when he was on the cross... Our Savior cried. <laughs> yeah, you can hear that cry in the background. He cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was the only time that Jesus ever referred to the Father as God. As all the sin of the world was placed upon him, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He cried that out. He cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we could cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. So that he would never ever, ever leave us or forsake us. He never will. And it's interesting here is that uh, it's the very last verse of Matthew. And, and as we think about what it cost Jesus Christ to save us, that's why at the very end of this text, he can promise this, verse 20, and behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age, it's pretty amazing. He will never, he will never, ever, ever leave you or forsake you. Nothing can ever separate you from his love because of what Christ has done on the cross. So I'll be up here at the, front of, uh, at the end of the service here. I'll be right up here and if you're, if you're new, please do not come up and say that you hate me, okay? <laughs> but I would love to meet you. I would love to meet you. And if you need prayer for any reason, I'd love to pray with you. We would love to pray with you. So uh, let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? So, Father God, thank you, thank you for for giving us this stunningly beautiful understanding of who you are, and that life is all about loving relationships with you and one another, filling us with this indescribable and indestructible joy and love. Father, we are full of gratitude and praise for you, appointing our salvation for your son accomplishing it and for the Holy Spirit applying it to our lives. Help us now according to 1 Timothy 4.16 to keep a close watch on ourselves and on the teaching, the doctrine. May we persist in this for by so doing we will save both ourselves and our hearers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all, we pray. In Jesus' beautiful name, and everyone said, amen. Love you guys. God bless you.